0: without any training, the heart doesn't know how to fill itself up with real calm. And if left to itself, will just continue to be preoccupied over and over again, concocting, creating, fabricating, imagining. And many of these creations An overwhelming number of them burden the heart. It produces materials which are not in its own best behalf. And the samadhi practice is a way of intentionally taking on this dilemma, one way of taking it on, by giving the thinking mind the preoccupied mind, in a sense, something to nibble on. We've given it the breath. And with continuous practice over a period of time, and some of you have begun to taste some of this calm, even if it's just for a second. Steadiness, clarity, sensitivity. Over a period of time, it grows and can become quite strong, steady, and increasingly refined. But it's not the deepest calm that the mind is capable of, the heart. For that to happen, there must be also insight, wisdom, panya. Becoming absorbed in the samadhi practice, even for just a little bit, it's a great relief. The mind feels a certain peace. It can enter into that state with practice at will and rest. But although some of the tendencies in the heart, the kilesas, if you recall that term, greed, hatred, delusion, all having everything to do with self-centeredness. The kilesas and self-centeredness are inseparable. You can almost say it's a synonym, one for the other. Unless those tendencies are uprooted, the heart continues to be afflicted and worn down, and for human beings, these kalases are embedded rather deeply in the heart. Now, I hope this isn't something mysterious. You know, by calling it kalesas, it, I hope it doesn't t- make put it into a realm that's foreign to you. It's just the same old stuff that keeps coming up from moment to moment that has brought you here. That is perhaps brought us all to search for all kinds of ways of easing out of this situation. The struggle in each one of us can be conceived as it was conceived of by the Buddha, As a struggle between the Dharma or the Truth and the Kalesas. The struggle is for control of the heart. Somehow there's something in the middle, you could call it mindfulness, you could call it wisdom, a potential that's in each one of us, that can go either way. That is, the. It's not that the mindfulness, it, it goes either way in the following sense the degree to which mindfulness and wisdom are asleep or weak is directly proportional to the degree to which the kalesas are strong and control the heart. Because it is wise attention, satipanya, that acts in a sense as an agent of the Dharma, works on behalf of the truth to examine, investigate, and dissolve burn away, end the control of the kilesas, the greed, hatred, and delusion. And the, the whole point of the practice, that is words like nirvana or arhats, these are kind of archetypes of fulfillment in this particular lineage, have to do with the total purification of the heart. No more greed, hatred, and delusion. All gone. So to begin with, Typically, we human beings find ourselves where the battle is overwhelmingly being lost. That is, it's mainly in the Kalesas are in control. And you might say, well, I'm a reasonably happy person. In fact, I'm a pretty happy person. I don't know what you mean. In a few senses, I'd have to qualify that. And what is meant? One is the troubles that uh, are part of a human life And sometimes uh, it's felt that Buddhists make too much of that. Perhaps uh, those of you who are new to this practice uh, will be helped with that one when you understand that what the Buddha was saying was all coming from the point of view of enlightenment. That is, if you're evaluating yourself from the frame of reference of what you know right now, and you say, I don't know, I'm pretty happy, I don't know what he's talking about, I have my time, sure, but... It isn't that bad. I have my health and decent relationship. I know how to earn a living, I have a nice house, and so forth. Many nice things. You have to understand that it's coming from a view that's beyond what we know, so it's all relative. From the point of view of absolute truth, even that happiness is a form of unsatisfactoriness. Moreover, and this is perhaps more difficult for us Westerners to grasp sometimes, is that it's uh, seen not from the point of view of just one lifetime. So that the relative happiness that you might know right now uh, has to be evaluated in terms of the many other options that have already, that exist for the future and where we've already been, where the situation has not been as beneficial. By and large, we have a good situation. All of us in this room, that's, we're here. And this may sound a little self-serving, but uh, the teaching at least is an attempt to move in some way that's sane. So, at first, sati and panyo in what you could say wise attention. That is, sati is mindfulness, which supervises everything. We've been using mindfulness, all of us, already. Uh, Since Friday, whenever the attentiveness leaves the breath, there's something that knows it and kind of it's supervising things and it escorts it back and says, it's time to go back to the breath. Something sees that. It's a kind of sensitivity. So mindfulness is paying attention to what's happening. Panya can be called discernment or wisdom. And in the context of Buddhist practice, it's a kind of intelligence. It's a kind of knowing in accordance with the principles of Dharma, which sees the implications of what's happening. It sees that some action is producing, is going to produce, has produced suffering, is inadequate or it's leading to cruelty. It sees what's happening. It discerns what's going on. Now, wisdom in the Buddhist teaching has three levels, and tonight I'm mainly interested in uh, one that might be somewhat new for many of us, especially those of you who are here for the first time. The first level is the most familiar, and that's study, conceptual clarification, so that there are wise thoughts, wise ideas, and all the great spiritual traditions and religions, uh, the great the scriptures, are, are nothing but that. These are thoughts that <clears throat> perhaps none of us would think up on our own because they come from a source that's perhaps deeper and clearer, whether you want to think in terms of revelation or just an enlightened mind. And so we have these ideas and we read about them and people talk about them and they affect us. And some of them can replace in interest some of the other ideas that we have filling up the mind, which in a certain sense don't go anywhere. They contribute to this uh, endless round of problems that the heart experiences. And that's a step in the right direction to start being given food, nourishment, verbal nourishment. That points in the direction of freedom, sanity, compassion. The next step of wisdom would be reflections. Taking any of those thoughts and chewing on them, turning them over, comparing our life experience with these ideas. Any, uh, any notion that you might read in a Buddhist text. And, Is that true? Has this been so in my life? Perhaps uh, some introspection, weighing it. And we all know that. Probably all of us know that one as well. <clears throat> and the third one, which is more, uh, it, it doesn't come along necessarily with a liberal arts education, is the direct perception. The first two do. The direct perception is what we're really working very hard to develop, and that is, it's a nonverbal perceiving of what's happening. Just very, very clearly seeing it experiencing it, at increasing levels of depth. There are many levels of calm, of samadhi, and each level of calm has a certain potential for investigation, for vipassana, for panya. That is, at a certain level of steadiness, there's just so much wisdom that's possible for that level. As the calm becomes deeper, as the samadhi deepens, the possibility of Discernment, probing more deeply, seeing more subtly, also deepens. And so it goes. That's why they're so, such valuable allies, and it really makes no sense to think of them uh, separate from each other. Even though we've been spending so much time, and mainly what you've been hearing is developing samadhi and calm, um, it's very much in the service of increasing levels of discernment seeing through, clear seeing, vipassana, insight. And this seeing is fresh, non-conceptual, non-conceptual, bare. It's just seeing things as they actually are. And yet the teachings, principles, which we get at first verbalized and then through reflection, are a necessary part of bringing us to the point where at a certain point what we're learning is direct and inescapable and has nothing to do with concepts. But to begin with, some verbal guidelines and some pointers, some teachings are really essential. Or we'll constantly keep following the teachings that we already have in our mind, which, as valuable as they may be, don't point in this direction, in the same direction. Hey, um greed, hatred, and delusion, the Kalesas, The starting point is that they uh, are overwhelmingly dominant in a human being's heart. It's not that the radiance or the purity of all that we could ever hope for isn't already there but it's covered over, entangled. The job of wise attention, satipanya, I'm using a few technical terms and I know that's difficult for those of you who are very new to this. That is mindfulness that has some discernment accompanying it. Those two work together and they're working on behalf of the Dharma or the truth or the way things are. And it's that, it's that wise attention that's so precious. The samadhi is essential, it's part of it. It's the strength in back of it. Now, the job of wisdom, the job of wise attention, is gradually over a period of time and through many techniques and kinds of experiences to finally enable the heart to surrender to wisdom. At this point, it has not. It very much believes all kinds of things that come into the mind. And you know, every interview testifies to that. You know how your mind keeps, no matter how much you say, I understand the teaching, your mind prefers to be agitated, it runs after it. It wants this, it wants that. And so, how can wisdom bring the heart to the point where it gradually and increasingly, with more and more intensity and depth, surrenders to wisdom? And the practice is that. That's what we're learning to do. Okay. Um, Up until now, in practicing uh, samadhi, the emphasis has been with sticking to an object. And of course, in the process of developing that, you can't help but develop some sensitivity to the object. So, and many of you have reported that. Why is attention requires sticking to the object? That is, if you can't stick to the object, you can't fully see its nature. Wisdom has to do with seeing the way it actually is. Now, in this particular practice, there are some teachings which are central to an understanding of wisdom. For those of you who are new to this practice, wisdom is a perfectly good English word and you already know what it means. A lot of the use, though, of the common sense use of wisdom, as valuable as that is, and there's no reason at all to discount it, can be included by the word wisdom. But it doesn't include a much more specialized or precise meaning in the in this practice. So that here, wisdom has to do with seeing. Uh, one of the main senses of wisdom it has to do with seeing the way things are, and it is said that if you do see the way things are, you'll see that there's a great deal of unsatisfactoriness that is intrinsic to life. It's not just that you're having a bad time. All, everyone that is, is having a bad, anything that is, is having a bad time, is a kind of psychophysical tension or a stress that runs through existence. Some of it's very obvious. Some of it is very subtle and not even within our threshold of perception, whether you want to call it repressed or we're not conscious of it. Certain existential kinds of uh, unsatisfactoriness, knowing that we all will die, not knowing when, for example. We know that we're so fragile and perishable, each and every one of us. No matter how hard we've worked to deny that, we know it. And we don't know when. It's kind of a bad joke. (laughs) And so there's that level. There are very, very subtle levels of seeing the unsatisfactoriness in life. Now, one dimension of wisdom is to is to be able to really see the existence of dukkha, which means unsatisfactoriness or incompletion, uh, suffering. And it is said that the fully enlightened ones, one of the things that qualifies a being for being fully enlightened is they totally and thoroughly see suffering. They've seen what it is. Now, this doesn't mean that this is training in masochism or in dreariness, as sometimes is suspected when you read only one part of the Buddha's teaching. Clearly, it's a message, a call to freedom, and it has to do with the uh, maximizing or attaining the optimum potential that a human being is capable of. So there is a very wonderful message in the teaching, which is that it is possible to be free. But the starting point is we must see our situation as it is. And one <coughs> characteristic of that situation is that there is a, a kind of unsatisfactoriness, that runs through. It's it's integral. It's innate in existence. Some of us have it more than others of us, but it's there. Now, to really see that requires samadhi. It requires a steady mind that can look at a lot of things that we'd rather not look at. But it also requires uh, a wisdom because. It requires seeing that a lot of the suffering that we have is there because of our unawareness. That is, the suffering itself exists because we don't understand the way things are. And let me bring in the second principle, which is often taught first, but I would like to use it second tonight, doesn't really matter, of impermanence. It's also said Or sometimes put in a question, sometimes the Buddha will ask, what is it that the fully enlightened ones know that we don't know? There's one thing that they they really know, we don't know it. And then it's answered that the fully enlightened ones know that everything that arises passes away. You might say, is that what distinguishes us? I mean, I know that, I know that everything arises, passes away. Perhaps if the Buddha were here, he would say, but do, do we really? do we really, totally, thoroughly, deeply know that everything that arises passes away? Okay, now wisdom more and more apprehends this truth. For example, right now at this moment, each one of us does know, probably there would be no disagreement disagreement, that everything that arises passes away that the law of change the law of impermanence you don't have to be a buddhist to know this or to believe this I and mean, everyone's every uh, it's been talked about in every culture and every civilization educated people uneducated but we all know that we're going to die and that's certainly one meaning of it we all know that uh, we go from being a baby and then we get a little older and then we get a little older and so forth and so you might nod and agree and say, yeah, that's the Buddha's right. Everything that arises passes away. But here we get into a a very important point and maybe it will help you appreciate samadhi and wise attention and some of the other terms that uh, you know of or will know of. If you stick your hand in, in fire, Most human beings don't need too many of those lessons to learn that you don't do that again. That every time I do this, I get hurt, I get burned. But basically it's that paradigm, that model, that's at the core of the whole teaching, cause and effect. And sticking our hand in the fire is as good an example as any. And we learn, and we learn a lot of things that way. But many things, are burning us or biting us with just as much consistency and predictability as fire and we don't seem to get it. So we seem doomed to repeat certain patterns over and over and over again. Now, one of the things that would be equivalent to a a burning is that if the universe is constantly changing, everything that arises passes away at whatever level you want to talk about from moment to moment. Microscopic, macroscopic, whole cultures, whole civilizations, your mood in just a 10 second period or an hour period or a 10 year period. It's constant flux. It's just a process. If that's true, that everything that arises passes away, but we're not living as if that's true, Aren't we going to suffer a lot unnecessarily? That is, if we have these fixations that want things to be a certain way, we are stubbornly committed to it. And things have a lawfulness all their own. The universe just unfolds in its own way. And it just keeps doing that. And we keep having these fixed desires and patterns and aversions. And we're not in step with the way things are. And so, of course, an enormous amount of suffering must follow from that. Because we're out of step. It's like dancing to... You're dancing to music that's appropriate. And those of you who like to dance, you know at a certain point, if you're really coordinated and in step and in harmony with the music, it's a wonderful feeling. But all that has to happen is, for. For the song to change or the music to change. If you keep doing the same, doing it the same way you were just doing with one song, but now it's different, it falls apart. It doesn't feel good. But that's what's happening. The music is constantly changing. Wherever we look, the weather is changing, people are changing, our ideas are changing. You tell me, the body is changing, the mind is changing, our moods are changing. But our consciousness is not supple enough. It's not. It's attached. We have cravings, fixations, which very powerfully drive us in certain directions and force us. This is the calaces to grab onto things, wanting them and wanting to hold on to them, even though they can't be held on to, or trying to make things go away more quickly, and they go away when they want to, when it's their time according to a certain lawfulness that we don't own. It's part of nature, but we appropriate it. The self appropriates it, it says it's mine, only to have it torn away from it, time and time again. Okay, now let's get back to some of the qualities we're developing. The young child is very sensitive and they learn a lot of lessons at an early age because of that sensitivity. They react to the world, they respond to the world, and they begin to learn at a very, very deep level because they're so sensitive. At a certain point, we harden up, build a kind of callus or membrane around ourselves and uh, intellectualize and so forth. One of the things that samadhi practice does, or calm, the calm practice, shamatha, is the mind becomes very sensitive. Have you noticed that it was more sensitive for you, even if just for a few moments? So that means the capacity for learning is deeper. That is, let's say, if it's the lesson of impermanence, the capacity for that impermanence to sink in, to really be more vivid, to be convincing, is much, the potential for that is much greater. And so a large part of our practice is increasing that sensitivity. Now, the clarity of our seeing not only starts to see things more clearly as they are. If things are indeed impermanent, we begin to really see it from moment to moment. So not only is the the clarity developed, but also the sensitivity which absorbs the truth of it is developed. And it has to sink very deeply into the heart for the heart to finally get it. It gets certain things, but there's just a lot that it doesn't. Now it's wisdom's job. If you recall, it was suggested that wisdom's job, it's a struggle for, for whether the heart is to favor the kalesas, these tendencies to, to, uh, for greed, hatred, and delusion. Delusion being central, because we do so many things because we are unaware and don't understand. mindfulness and wisdom working together, in a sense, are taking the, the heart and pointing out to it. Can you see that? Can you see what's happening? Can you see in this moment, this is arising and passing away? Are you getting the implications of that? Is that sinking in deeply enough? Now, at different levels of samadhi, there's a certain level of grasping the truth of what is being experienced. At a deeper level, The truth can be experienced at a deeper level. At a still deeper level, the insight can be at a deeper level. Do you see why samadhi and insight are uh, companions? And if samadhi is not very developed, you'll be seeing truth and it'll be somewhat satisfying just as a person who's mainly interested in these things intellectually. Reading some of the Buddhist texts are quite an extraordinary challenge for the mind. Those you would like read the Avatamska Sutra. I think you'll have plenty of food to train your mind on. It's quite fulfilling. But it remains at a certain level, and it's very limited in terms of its transformative power. What it transforms us is this increasingly di- uh, more direct, intimate, sensitive seeing. And that seeing more and more starts to, the, the the heart can't help but surrender and it starts to see, oh, whenever I get attached to, to something and the world is constantly changing, I suffer. I must suffer. Wisdom can show us that. Wisdom can see, can you see that it's all changing? Can you see that if you grasp on to anything whatsoever, particularly I and mine, if you make it into a, an eye, and then the property of that eye, a mind. Can you see that that it never works, it never has, and it never will? It's just common sense. It's so obvious, and it has levels of subtlety that if you get attached to the body or particular images of yourself or anything really, and the mind, the heart, increasingly starts to to be to surrender to the teachings of wisdom. Now, if we don't get it from wisdom, wisdom is pointing out these things. It's showing us cause and effect. It's saying, Do you see that if you touch fire it, it hurts? Please don't do that again. If we don't get it gently through intelligence, well <clears throat> there is a force in the universe, a great teacher called suffering and as I, I think I mentioned uh, it puts all teachers everywhere to shame that as no matter if I know some of you are teachers and you know you absolutely must have patience to teach or to be a therapist right to be a parent maybe to just be alive you just need patience. <laughs> but let's say in the teaching work in, in that work you certainly need patience and dedication. Stay with a student, wherever, whatever level they are, and keep never give up on anyone until they finally get it, and then they graduate. Well, suffering is puts us all to shame. It just until you get it, it's just going to keep being there. It's just going to say, if you not get it, well, I'm I'm not going anywhere. I have a job to do, which is to teach you that this doesn't work, and I am willing to stay here through as many lifetimes as you have and want. I have no place to go. This is my job. I don't have anything else to do. Now, if you want to just keep going around and dancing with me, it's all right with me because I have nothing else to look forward to. Okay, now, wisdom helps us with that process by taking us, to perceiving it and also taking in the impact of what it is that we've perceived at increasingly deeper and more consequential levels of being. So that at a certain point it becomes not only easy, but impossible to be attached. It's not that I can't speak from experience and say that I'm not attached to anything, but I have practiced long enough to know that that uh, things are much more workable. They become workable and you realize that it gets easier to let go of things. In fact, let go of things. In fact, more and more, it becomes hard to get attached. And I'm not saying that as a negative thing. I'm saying that uh, there's something that's very obvious: that you enjoy a meal while it's there, and when it's not there, it's gone. It's as simple as that. Now, if you keep trying to give the meal e- eternity through your f- fantasy life or as we do here by stashing on the shelves of those of you.
1: uh,
0: It can take you just so far. Try the three-month course. It looks like a grocery here. Some of you know that. Now, so the samadhi, the, 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 the power, that is, wisdom needs a certain power in back of it. Samadhi is just of incredible help. For example, the metta uh, practice that Narayan uh, guided us through the other evening. Supposing you had very, very strong samadhi, or whatever degree, stronger than what we all have now. Supposing we all developed it a lot more and we got the same guided meditation, but now we had a level of samadhi that was available to us when we wanted to use it. That level of strength or concentration or calm, well, these are different aspects of it, could mix in with the metta. The metta and the samadhi mix in together and the metta could be just incredibly more powerful. The, t- the one teaching of the Buddha is uh, dealing with the combination of samadhi and metta was a time when his, uh I forget now, cousin or brother-in-law, Devadatta. Does anyone remember? Cousin? Okay. What? Cousin. cousin. Anyway, Devadatta was kind of a bad guy and he wanted to take over the order and wrest it away from the Buddha. He tried in a number of ways to discredit the Buddha and one time he set it up so a mad elephant would go charging down this lane. that the He knew the Buddha would be walking up and if the Buddha ran away, then he'd be discredited as just being an ordinary Joe like the rest of us, afraid. And if not, the Buddha would be killed. And so, either way, he could take over the order. So, as the story goes, I don't know if it's true, but it's a nice story. Uh, The elephant started charging towards the Buddha, and the Buddha just sent this incredible loving-kindness to the elephant, metta. And one of the qualities of a Buddha is unlimited metta. And it's totally all-embracing, universal. That's what it's about. We're limited. Our capacity to love is limited. But we're, we're connected to the Buddha in that we have metta too. It's just it's a little limited. Okay. And as the story goes, the elephant just stopped and dropped to its knees and put both palms together. I don't see why it couldn't be true. Why not? But now... Take it into wisdom. You're examining something. You're examining, let's say, fear that comes up in the mind, or you're examining physical pain in the body. Or you're examining the mind producing some image of itself as being this, that, or the other. And mindfulness, let's say effort, directs attention to it. And we, we look at it. But now, let's say, whatever the degree of samadhi that's developed, if there's more strength in back of the looking, more stability, Not only can the looking not be budged, but it can penetrate more deeply. And the Panya, or the wisdom that accompanies it, can discern what is necessary to discern from what you're looking at, to see the implications of it, to extract the wisdom from it, and to hold it in front of the heart. And so just, can you see this? Do you see? And so the degree to which our samadhi is developed is very important. Factor in contributing the degree to which our wisdom can develop. Now, I just wanted to give you a feeling for it, and then I want to talk about a possible some options for the remainder of the retreat and some suggestions for all of us how to how to finish up the retreat. First of all, uh, please understand that. Uh, working on the samadhi, even if you do it for the entire retreat, the entire nine days. and uh, I'd like to suggest that if you have seen some value in it and are working in the samadhi, it would be just wonderful to just do that, do what you're doing for the whole retreat, to finish up. But understand that uh, this practice is a lifetime's work. It's not some nine-day or weekend crash program to anything. It's not one of those workshops, it's, it just isn't. It never ends, or it's a workshop that just never ends, keeps going. At any rate, some sense of how these two work together might be useful, especially for new people, and for some of you who have not worked in such an explicit way with samadhi. <coughs> we work on it, just as let's say we did today, and this past week, and perhaps longer, and at a certain point, uh, develop the ability to drop into increasingly deep and stable levels of calm. Let's say more and more you have that as part of your equipment as a, as a meditator, as a yogi. It's not something so special. It's something that a resource that you have. You can, if you need to, come to one the breath, take that as an exclusive object, and Within a certain while, find that you really calm down, very calm, very steady. And there, I don't want to go into all the levels of samadhi, which there are quite a bit. And so, let's say you drop into that level. Uh, this is not something miraculous that's beyond our capacity, it's something that we can develop with practice. And so, the mind uh, refreshes itself in that state. Just as when you go to sleep, don't you feel stronger in the morning if you all things equal, if you had a good night's rest? And you can do more things. You can take on more if, you've, if, you have, if you're fresh than if you haven't had enough sleep. Now, the work of investigation is, can be hard work. It can be examining fear. It can be examining uh, loneliness. Just staying with certain things. There can be uh, forces that uh, are going the other direction saying you don't want to look at this. And so... No matter how fruitful the investigation is, the time comes where it, you have to take a break. And then it's possible to drop into samadhi to heal oneself or to rest, really. And somehow the mind knows when it's had enough and then it comes out and can begin to do vipassana work. The work of panya, of, of insight, of wisdom. And it's after a while it becomes this artful working back and forth. Um, Knowing when uh, for the mind to take rest and when to come out of the rest and examine and investigate and see the way things are. And it's a totally integrated approach to to practicing. Just to, to give you a sense of that. So it's not as if you... Samadhi is for beginners and then you master it and then you go on to the big stuff, which is vipassana. They work together right up until the end. So far, we've been working with the breath as an exclusive object with one provision. That is, if something has become a formidable problem and has taken your attention away from the breath time and time again, and in effect, you're really unable to follow the breath because of this, if you recall, then you investigate. and So any of the things that were mentioned about uh, wise attention would apply there a kind of careful looking and understanding, seeing the impermanence of whatever it is, seeing it arise and pass away, that it has that nature. That changes your relationship to it if you really see that everything that arises passes away. It eases the attachment that we have to it. It makes the letting go easier and with the letting go comes freedom. Or you see that nothing has, everything is not self. It doesn't. uh, Okay, I'll I'll get back to this. There's one misconception about that, and a few notes have already brought it up. I'd I'd like to just mention that. But let's say you see that, or you see a certain unsatisfactoriness, and you're willing to look at it, and you understand what caused it, perhaps grasping. You have a wonderful sitting, and then the next sitting is rotten, and you're suffering a lot. Now, the fact that the sitting is rotten doesn't mean you have to suffer but we suffer because we don't want it to be rotten. We want it to be the way it was the sitting before when it was great. Good sitting, bad sitting. And we see that, you know, that was and we let go of it. We see it and so you, know, it's not necessary to suffer this one. I uh, this is the way my mind is right now. It's possible to become more accepting to the happy states or when the practice is going very well when we think it's not going so well a certain equanimity can develop. Now, there's another mode of practice, and some of you have, maybe many of you who've been here before, have been doing that. And that's also an equally valuable and beautiful practice. And that's using the breath as a primary but not exclusive object. Now, in this case, you're also working with the breath. But any time something takes your attention from the breath, was any time anything other than breath becomes predominant, It dominates, it becomes the most distinct. You turn that immediately into the meditation object. So what we were making the exceptional case in samadhi work, that is only if it's really quite something, do you drop the breath and investigate. When you have the breath as a primary object, there's much more, it's a longer leash, there's more latitude to investigate. Now, there's a provision which at times makes it almost the same thing. You examine these objects which are other than breath, and you stay with them, and you see their impermanence, for example, only if you can do it. Now, but if you find that your mind is going out of focus, that you're getting lost in it, preoccupied with it, taken over by it, then you go back to the breath. That's one way to practice. And you can see, so it's on a continuum. It's not totally different than what we've been doing, but it gives you much more of a free rein to investigate mental states and bodily states, should you uh, feel called to do so, because they become strong. So what I'd like to suggest, and make sure you don't forget the rule of thumb, that if you start doing that, but find that you're not so clear, your focus is not clear, or you're getting caught up in this other-than-breath object, that please come back to the breath. Uh, what I'd like to suggest is that you have that as an option. Now, some of you who have already been working that way for some time. Please feel free to do that. Maybe you've been doing it anyway. You know, I don't have any authority over you. All I can do is shoot my mouth off. <laughs> and you can come in interviews and, you know, you can con me. Put me on and tell me this and that. I'll believe it. We only have ten minutes. I can't, you know, can't have lie detector tests or anything like that. It's your life anyway. Okay. So um, some of you may want to, um, and I would encourage you to, if you feel that that the Samadhi practice is fruitful and you want to continue it for the remaining few days, by all means, really, keep doing it and only investigate when it's something strong that, takes, that requires it. Uh, some of you may want to, maybe have, uh, are at the end of your rope with this samadhi practice. If I am forced to stay with the breath, one more breath, I will jump off the highest place in this center. If you're at that point, you may want to uh, do a bit more investigation. Some of you who have strong samadhi, you know, relative to what you know, because it's a quite a profound dimension. Relative to what you know, you feel, oh, my mind is much more calm and steady than what I've ever known. You may want to see if that does make a difference in in vipassana work. See that now that you have a little bit more steadiness, a little bit more calm, you start to see, for example, arising and passing away, or watch uh, the play of Uh, Selfing, you know, thoughts about I and mind, observe that or observe anything else in the body, dukkha in the body. See if it's not some help that the mind has been studied for one, two, three, four, six, however many days before doing the investigation. Now, you've been doing wisdom work all along, as you know, because you're learning a lot about yourself since the... Uh, mind is throwing up quite a struggle. It doesn't want to just come back to the breath and the things that attempt to pull you away are showing you things about yourself and many of you have been quite articulate in interviews about what you're learning and that's fine. So, uh, it's really up to you. You have to uh, make a choice. If there's any confusion, there'll be a discussion group tomorrow morning and we can talk it over. Um, It's fine if everyone wants to finish the samadhi work because... It's a good opportunity to deepen that. And there's ample uh, chance to investigate not only the strong distractions, but also during the day. Anytime you find that you're suffering or you get attached to something, or uh, as has been suggested, just look at it and see what's going on, just in the course of living here. Um, Um. That's all. <laughs> okay. Did you have a question? Uh, you, it may not. Be, there may not be much point in asking questions for those of you who are new, until you. If you want to try this way, that gives you more latitude to examine other things. Now remember, there's another possibility as well. But I wouldn't encourage, especially those of you who are new to do it, and that is to just drop the breath altogether and just be with whatever is most vivid in the moment. When the samadhi is naturally very strong, there's no reason why you can't spend long periods of time just just seeing what's happening, not particularly needing the breath until you do, until you need to calm down or to um, resuscitate the mind. Any questions about anything that's been said? And there will be opportunity to go over it in more detail tomorrow morning. It doesn't have to be about the new practice, the new possibility. It can be about anything that was said. You're afraid that if you ask a question, it will wreck your samadhi? Is that the reason? Yes? I can't see. Is there a hand raised? Sorry. Please.
1: Uh, I'm still a little bit puzzled on one thing. When I have uh, used the knowing, uh, that is a primary object and and something called, let's say it's a thought or 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 an image, and I note that it's there, Mm -hmm. almost inevitably, and I don't do it for this, but almost inevitably, it, it just does.
0: Yes, and you don't get attached to it. Yeah. Uh, so it's very the helpful.
1: Time, the only time it sticks around is, is if it's pain in the back. You know, then that stays. <laughs> <laughs> Am I
0: confused on this? I don't think it's any different. That is, um, investigation is investigation not of anything static, but of a a very alive process. Let's say if it's even pain in the body, you're observing the movement of that pain. It's not standing still and you're seeing it. If it were noting, you'd probably be saying pain, 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 or maybe uh, sharp pain or dull ache or whatever it is. But here, I'm not teaching noting. And I, uh, it might be better if we talk about it privately because I don't want to give you something else to think that. What am I missing out? I, I want to come away from here with uh, my money's worth and get, get noting as well. Don't forget there's also koans and there are all kinds of things you can learn. Um, you got it. Okay, great. How many of you would have rather that I didn't give you the option, that I didn't open my big mouth and just said, go straight ahead with samadhi until the end of it, honestly? I'm trying to learn how to teach this as well to a mixed group. It's not easy, because some of you are really starting out and some of you have been practicing for quite a while. Uh, there are all kinds of in-betweens as well. And any of you feel, oh, I don't want to have that new option, I just want to keep, I wish it was just the same instructions? Did anyone have that feeling? No one. It's okay to be given an option. I'm afraid of it's too okay. Okay. Yeah. I have
1: a few questions. Sure.
0: I'm sitting
1: here trying to figure out how to phrase them. Um, I guess I'm not really clear on the difference between uh, when you were speaking about how some people use primary objects Mm
0: -hmm.
1: the way that we've been using it. Mm -hmm. And Oh, okay. Good.
0: Need like a no, no. Very good question. Vipassana has nothing. You can stay on the breath and practice vipassana. It has nothing to do necessarily with having a moving field of objects. And uh, uh, let me make that clear. It's. Uh, I think I'm. I hope I'm directing myself to what you're asking. But
1: yeah, I, I just need a real clear definition.
0: Okay. Of what vipassana is. Okay. Let's for the moment say it's seeing the impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness, and the lack of self in anything. Anything whatsoever. There is insight into that basic. Okay, I, I know that you have just let's take impermanence. Okay, one one main meaning of insight is insight into the uh, to change impermanence. That's a, that's a meaning of it in this practice. You won't find that in the dictionary perhaps, but that's a, that's what this means. Well, if you look at a breath, you can learn. See, imperma- if impermanence is universal then there's no, you can just stick a pin in anywhere and you'll sit, find it. There's no place where it isn't. So you can stop at the breath. Now, in the samadhi practice, we're not trying to look for impermanence because we don't want to load the mind up with some more work than it needs. We just want it to, to come back and to stay with it. We don't want it to work hard also trying to figure out, is this self impermanent? You know, we don't want to do that. Just stay there. Now, if you look at an in-breath and you see, oh, look at that, it begins and then it peaks and then it's the end of it. Either it disappears by gradations, fades away, or it's a sharp falling off and then an out-breath, the same thing happens to that. As you get quieter, you may see that an in-breath is made up of a number of sort of, not one thing, but a number of different things that arise and pass away in rapid succession. So you're seeing, oh, this breath is impermanent. Another way you get it is the breath is so, smooth and beautiful, it's like satin. Sometimes, I know some of you have had that. And then suddenly it becomes very coarse, like uh, uh, what's a coarse fabric canvas. It's changed suddenly. Oh, what? and, and suddenly you see everything's changing. Or it's long, the, the outbreaths are very long. And then suddenly it gets very short or it's very slow and then it suddenly becomes very rapid. In, out, in, out, in, out, in, out. And you can see that just on the breath you're learning about the law of impermanence. You don't have to go anywhere else. Suffering, dukkha. If you just stay with the breath, sometimes the breath are, breath is very unpleasant. Many of you have brought this up. It can even be cutting. Sometimes it can cut the nostrils, feels if it is, it's so coarse. At other times it's just a joy to feel an in-breath and an out-breath. So you're seeing the law of dukkha. And in terms of self, anatta, which is what confuses everyone, what you might see is that breathing is happening but there's no solid, substantial entity that's doing the breathing. There's a process of breathing and there's a succession of images and thoughts which claim each breath as being this is me, that's mine. But those images and thoughts also leave. And what you have is breathing with no breather. And so then you see the law of anatta. Anatta doesn't mean that there's no self. A number of, there have been a few little notes that I've gotten. It doesn't mean this. It means that the self, the self exists. It's not saying it doesn't exist. It exists, but not in quite the way in which we think it does. It isn't substantial. It does not have a core. What it is is a succession of representations saying, I'm you. And then we grasp onto it and say, that's right. Sometimes they're nice, sometimes they're not. And then they leave, and then another one comes. And there are gaps. We're not doing it all day long, or it would be really even worse on us than it already is. The Kalesas, remember, are largely in the service of perpetuating this self-centeredness. They're expressions of it. Greed. Why would we be... It's greed for on behalf of me. Hatred. You did that to me. I can't let you get away with what you did to me. I want that for me. So it's just another way of saying it. So Vipassana doesn't... Now, you can do that, but mostly um, we we see these laws in the body and in the mind. That's where where we're mainly seeing it. And that's what has the most powerful effect, seeing it personally. You can see it in nature as well. You can see that nothing outside of ourselves is substantial either. But it seems to be more powerful in terms of transformation when you see it in yourself, at wherever you want to look, the body, moods, anything. And that, That's the essence of it. Now, when you open it up and you start seeing all these objects coming and going that, uh, and looking at it that way, then that's more of a vipassana practice. You can develop samadhi on moving objects. That is, if you can be with an object during the life that it's there... That's a quality of concentration. That is, something arises and you're with it and you trace it through the whole journey until it ends. So you're developing that. But one, some would say, the best way to develop samadhi is to just take one object and that's what we did. Don't try to learn everything in one time. And, um, whatever you do, whichever practice, whichever version of the same practice, just do it wholeheartedly and that's, that's all we need. Okay.